Take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 15 and beginning in verse 33. Mark 15, 33. It's found on page 852 in your pew Bibles if you're using that. Christ in our last account was nailed to the cross and so we, we pick up in sort of the middle of his crucifixion account. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And some one ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Thus, There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and Josie and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Father, we thank you, Lord, so much uh, as we come this morning to really the the highlight of Mark's gospel, the pinnacle, to to see uh, how you have chosen to work amongst your people since from the beginning of when everything was made, uh, you had this plan and you're carrying it out. Oh, Lord, I pray that as we we listen carefully to your word this morning, that we would give ears and and, and heart and soul totally to you, Lord, uh, that we might hear your truth. You might speak to us, we pray in your name. Amen. One of the things I, I love personally is history. And so sometimes I, I just sort of sit and contemplate different questions and think about history. And one of the things I was thinking this week was, I wonder, in all of history, of all the people who ever lived, who, was, who had the greatest record of sin? Would it be Nero? Would it be Hitler? Stalin? Ivan the Terrible of Russia? And and as I thought about it, I think I came up with the answer. It is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. All the sins of God's people were placed on him. And he had the greatest record of sin. And so no wonder that the symbol of Christianity is not the fist or a hammer or a carpenter's chisel, but it is the cross. That, that instrument of torture and execution, shame, to pay for such great sin. It's interesting, um, I've, I've read a lot of things about the cross in the last couple of weeks, and one of the things that I, I came across was how people in Jesus' day 
really hated the cross. Many wouldn't even talk about it, wouldn't even really bring it up in conversations because it was such an awful way to die. Um, and, and rightly so. I mean, some people, it took up to three days sometimes for people to die on the cross. Now, that wasn't the case with Jesus. He died much sooner than that. But his death on the cross was one of the excruciating pain and suffering and shame. And I would argue it's, it was worse than anybody else that died upon the cross. And we'll see why today as we look at our text. You see, it's important that we understand the cross in the context of Mark's gospel. If you remember when we first started Mark's gospel, we, we looked at what Mark was really addressing. And the question he really is addressing is, who is Jesus? And uh, he, he not only states it, but he really drives the point home. Because, I mean, he, he actually gives the answer in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. I mean, he just starts right out that way. He goes, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the Anointed One. Jesus, the King who you were expecting to come. The Son of God. Now, just a short few verses later, when Jesus was baptized, then we read in, in Mark chapter 1, verse 9, where the Father said of His Son, This is my beloved Son. Once again, re reiterating what was already said. And so then, Mark takes his gospel, and he unpacks this truth that Jesus is the Messiah. But he doesn't just describe it. He doesn't just teach about it. He actually shows us. He actually shows us through account after account after account uh, who he is as the Messiah. And you see things like the fact that he has authority over demons. He has the authority over nature. He has the authority over sin. I mean, it just goes on and on. And you, it just begins to grow and you see more and more who Jesus Christ is. Now, his disciples, and we can probably relate to this sometimes, were a little dense. Okay, and they didn't see it until about halfway through the book. And then they're like, oh, you're the Messiah. And so then Mark, then in the last half of the book, then sort of moves from that question of who is Jesus to why is it that he came? What was his mission? Because they had in their minds this idea of what the Messiah should be. He should deliver his people from Rome. And Mark was wanting to show us, no, he, he came to do something much greater he, Mark was revealing that his mission was one of suffering. And that mission comes to a climax in our text today as we look at the cross. Um, and particularly in verse 39, uh, we sort of see the pinnacle of Mark's gospel. As the centurion says, surely this man was the Son of God. Now, we don't know if the centurion was a believer or not. Tradition says he did. He came to faith in Christ. But the Bible doesn't tell us for certain. But nonetheless, he makes this great proclamation that Jesus is the Son of God. And so as we look at this climactic passage in the book of Mark, I want to remind us what it means for Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God. And, and it might be... Uh, it, it's really rather startling when you really stop and think about it. I know we grow up in church and so we've heard about it all of our life. But for Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God, uh, involves the story of the cross. And last week we saw Christ 
had to suffer physically. He had to suffer greatly, but also he had to be put to shame. Now, that is huge, brothers and sisters, this whole idea of shame. And if you think about our culture, I mean, we're not necessarily a culture of shame like, like some, but I've done enough counseling over the years to see how much people wrestle with shame because of their own sin and sometimes because of the sin of others that was committed against them. But Christ was shamed for us. He, he took that shame. He took that suffering. But also we see not only did it involve physical suffering and shame, but as we're going to see today, Jesus had to face the judgment for sin. Uh, not, of course, his sin, but our sin, the sins of his people. And so I want us to see a couple things this morning. First of all, that the cross was a cross of judgment. It was a cross of judgment. And, and we see this judgment in the darkness that covered the land. Look at verse 33. And, and when the sixth hour had come, that is noon, okay, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, that is until 3 p.m. Now, I cannot think of a time during the day that's brighter than between noon and 3. And yet, in this case, there was darkness, a regional darkness that was over that whole area, over the whole land. And of course, uh, as you look at Scripture and the whole idea of darkness, it symbolizes God's judgment. And, and we could look at a number of different passages. Let me just take us to one that is in Amos chapter 8 and verse 9. Amos chapter 8 and verse 9. And, and Amos is prophesying um, about the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is a day of judgment, sort of looking forward to the end times where there will be that great judgment that, that all will go through. And yet, it's, it's interesting that while prophecy will oftentimes look to a particular point in time for the fulfillment of that prophecy, there will be times uh, throughout history where that prophecy will be fulfilled in more minor ways and stuff. But in this way, we see that uh, God's judgment is coming upon Christ because all people must be judged, even Christians. And so what God did was he, he brought his judgment upon us early on the person of Jesus Christ so that we wouldn't have to take our own judgment. <clears throat> Let me read what Amos says about this great day of the Lord and God's judgment. He said, And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feast into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like a mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. What a description. Not only does it talk about the darkness of the light being turned to darkness, but it talks about it as a time of mourning. I, I will turn your feast into mourning and your songs into lamentations. I, I, will, I will take in, it'll be like you had just one son and that son has died in the mourning that you would go through in the loss of that son. That's what it's going to be like. So according to Amos, Christ's crucifixion was a time of mourning and a time of judgment. Uh, we also see that another example, if I could, uh, back in the plague of the Ten Commandments in Egypt in Exodus chapter 10. 
beginning with verse 23. And, and as the Exodus, uh, there was a, a, a plague. Before the Exodus, there was a plague of darkness that spread over the land before the first Passover lamb was slain. And, and here now we see the death of the ultimate Passover lamb. And there again, we see that darkness, that judgment that's coming. God's judgment was being poured out in a midday night. And that, that really takes us to the very center of what is happening on the cross. For in those three black hours, sin was poured upon Christ's soul until he became sin. Can you imagine that? For three hours, Christ is silent and sin is being poured upon him. Of course, scripture talks about this and I know I think I've quoted this verse these verses about every sermon for the last three or four sermons, but it's worth hearing again. He was despised and rejected by men. Now, listen to this, brothers and sisters. I mean, I, I think I, I talk to people who, I, I don't know many people who are despised. I, I, I know there are people who are despised, but I do know people who are rejected by other people and just how crushed they are in their souls that that has occurred, but he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted, in other words, very familiar with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Just imagine what Christ went through. Surely he was born, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions or our sins, kids. He was crushed for our iniquities, our, once again, our sins. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. He went through all of that so that um, we would have peace and our sins would be taken care of, we'd be healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. It's amazing what Christ did upon the cross. And it's funny because, or funny, it's interesting, because every Lord's Day that we partake of the Lord's Supper, we recite the Apostles' Creed. It just dawned on me this week that Matt never gets to lead any other confession other than the Apostles' Creed because it comes on the third uh, Sunday of the month. Uh, but, uh, you know, in the Apostles' Creed, one reason we do that on the week that we do the Lord's Supper is that there's the key components of the Christian faith are summarized in the Apostles' Creed. And in that creed, we say that Christ descended into hell. And some think that the, that um, this means that Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, he was crucified, he was dead, he was buried, and he then descended into hell. It's sort of like it's in chronological order. And so there are some who teach that after Christ died, that he went down to the, um, and I don't know if I'll get this Latin correct, but the Libus Patrium, down into limbo, where the fathers of the Old Testament were somewhere in the Netherlands between heaven and hell named Sheol, and, and they lived there, and Christ went in and he brought them to heaven. 
is what, what some would, would teach. But I really, that's not what the creed is teaching us. Uh, Calvin really summed it up well in what the Bible teaches regarding this when he says that the Apostles' Creed is not speaking chronologically, as in the order of events, about the sufferings of Christ, but categorically. Uh, he, it's, he's talking about two different categories of suffering. He's talking about what man saw on the cross and then what God saw on the cross. What, what Jesus suffered in his body, he was crucified, he died, and he was buried. That's, that's what man saw, right? Uh, but what Jesus suffered in his soul, what God saw, is he descended into hell. So it wasn't something that happened after he was buried. He didn't do so after the cross because Jesus committed his, his spirit to the Father. He also promised the thief that today you'll be with me in paradise. And when Jesus died, he said what? It is finished. It is done. And so it was on that cross in the hours of darkness he descended into hell as he was abandoned by God, given over to the wrath of God. In those hours, all of our sin was with Jesus. And he didn't merely bear our sins. He became our sins as his soul soaked up the iniquity of his people like a sponge from every tongue and tribe and nation. And Christ became liable for our debts, the debts of all of his people. Uh, could you imagine if you open your credit card statement and there were millions of charges that you did not make. And the credit card company said you were responsible for that. Well, in essence, that's what Christ did. He took all that debt. You know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ suffered the prospect of this. But now on the cross, he faces the reality of pain for that sin. I think it's interesting. If you know anything about your Old Testament, you know that that Abraham made the trek to this mountain like 2,000 years before Christ, and Abraham did so with his son Isaac. And Abraham would not spare his son, but God did spare his son. But when God brought his son up that same mountain, he didn't spare Jesus, but gave his son for his people. God unleashed all the canons of justice and retribution that ought to be leveled against us. He leveled those against Jesus Christ in those hours of darkness. In those three hours of darkness, sin was poured upon Christ's soul until he became sin. Wave after wave after wave of, of sins of God's elect was poured over Christ's sinless soul. And again and again, during those three hours, his soul recoiled and it convulsed as all the, the lies of humanity were poured upon him. All the murders were paid for, not only actual physical murders, but all the hateful things, brothers and sisters, that you and I have said to other people, all the anger that we have had, all the animosity that we have had towards other people, were placed upon Jesus Christ. All of our jealousy, all of our pride, all of our other sins were poured out on His purity. And finally, Christ became a curse. That's what Galatians 3 says. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
For as it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. In all that time, in, in, in the darkness, Jesus bore all of this in silence. He didn't say a word. Does that stir your soul this morning? As you hear of what your Savior has done? I wonder sometimes if, if we've heard it so much that we just, it no longer touches us. And I was trying to think, well, what would be an analogy that I could drive home? And then I, I read something that a, a preacher shared. And, and he says, well, perhaps that we could imagine a beautiful young girl, a virgin, who was violently raped a terrible, by a terrible, perverted man. And to think of the horrors that she experienced in those moments as he forced himself upon her. And as sickening as that is to us to hear that, it is only a dim shadow of the agony that Christ experienced on the cross for us. But there's more, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story, I guess. If you look at verses 34 through 36, you, you see because... Christ became sin for us. He had to undergo the cosmic trauma of separation from God who is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And so in the darkness of the cross's night, Jesus was alone as the Father turned away from him. Jesus didn't merely feel separated from the Father, but it was a real separation. Now, Cranfield, who's a commentator, uh, he makes this point. He says, The ontological unity of the Trinity was not broken, but the separation of the Son from the Father and the Spirit was a fact. Of course, this was possible because of the authenticity of the Incarnation. You see, God's holy nature demanded separation as the Son became sin. I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not, but, but even the most evil, wicked, person who ever lived, whether that's Nero or Hitler or whoever it is, has none of them has ever known in this life the horror of being completely cut off from God like Jesus Christ did. God always sustained them. God was always there with them. But the black silence for Christ goes on one hour, two hours, and wave upon wave comes to his convulsing soul. Jesus, who had never known a millisecond of separation from the Father and the Spirit, is alone under the wrath and the judgment of God. Then came the end of the third hour, and the silence is shattered. We read in verse 34, And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, crucifixions were normally punctuated by outbursts like this, but usually it was the rage of the person being crucified or, or the pleading or the cursing or whatever it might be. But Jesus severed his silence by quoting Psalm 22.1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was a cry that expressed his unfathomable pain and his real abandonment by his father. Now, people didn't get it. Look at verse 35. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. Now, maybe that's because he said, Eloi, Eloi, as a, and they were thinking that he was referencing Elijah. You know, we don't know. We, we do know from John's gospel 
that right after this, Jesus says, I'm thirsty. And so it makes a little bit more sense what John says in verse 35, the end of verse 35. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. Now, sour wine, or some, some of your translations may say wine vinegar, same thing. But in Numbers 16 and, and Ruth 2, it's really described as a refreshing drink. If I could, I'll just call it the ancient Gatorade at the time, right? You know, it was just sort of a, a drink to sort of boost you up. And, and it says that uh, they offered that to Jesus, and then it says in verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Now here again, we know from John's gospel and Luke's gospel what exactly Jesus said when he cried out. He said, to tell us die, it is finished. And then he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Jesus took his last breath. Now, commentators that I read this week point out how remarkable this death was. Uh, this is not normally how people die on the cross. I know we've heard this account our whole lives, so we just think this is typical, but it's really not. People died on the cross in exhaustion. Oftentimes they would fall unconscious first, and then they would die while they're unconscious. That's usually... What happens? They didn't normally cry out with a loud voice and die. You know, as we look at the way that Christ died, even though he died in judgment for our sins, there seems to be something triumphant and victorious in how Jesus Christ died. That he actively laid down his life is victory. It, it wasn't taken from him. Jesus gave up his life. Uh, the last breath he breathed. Uh, up until that time, he knew exactly what he was doing. He was in control the whole time. And, and as I said earlier, the centurion recognized this in verse 39. He, he saw the way that Jesus Christ died. And he knew that this was something that was very different and that he had to be different. And Mark brings out in his gospel that it was expressly the way Jesus died that sparked faith in the centurion if he truly was a, a believer and so there's a sense of victory and that leads me to my second point and that is that the cross was not only a cross of judgment it was a cross of victory and, and we see this particularly in verse 38 and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom now I want to point out that there's there's two veils or curtains in the temple and not every scholar agrees on which of the two curtains was torn, okay? So I'm going to give you both takes, but I'll give you what I think is uh, biblically the, the, the best. Um, so the first curtain was the outer curtain. That, this was the curtain that was sort of the main entrance into the, the temple, and one everyone would clearly have seen if it was torn. The other curtain was the inner curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies. The, the Holy of Holies was the most holy place in the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was. It's where the priests would go in. The high priest would only go in once a year. And so if, if the curtain was torn and it was the outer curtain, it would have been something very visibly seen by everyone. And there is historical evidence in extra-biblical sources that something like that might have happened. And, and if that was the case, then the message would have been this that the physical temple was under judgment and it was effectively destroyed. That the real temple had come in the person of Jesus Christ and now the old temple was no longer any use. 
People would now come to God through Jesus Christ, the true temple that was destroyed on the cross, but which would be raised up on the third day. Now, uh, we do know, historically speaking, that in AD 70, that the temple was destroyed, and, and destroyed for good. And so that point really was made by Titus in AD 70. Um, the, the other view uh, is that it was the inner curtain, the one between the holy place and the holy of holies. Uh, and I think this is an even greater significance. And by the way, this is what I would believe is the right view. And it's just not my opinion. I think scripture bears this out, as I'll share in just a minute. You see, by tearing this inner curtain, it tells us two things. First, that the old sacrifices for sin are no longer needed, but also that the access to God is now open for all through Jesus Christ. And, and this is actually the exact point that Hebrews makes. And this is why I said I think that this is the one that the view that is, is correct. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, we read, to, to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And so the tearing of this inner curtain symbolizes that we now have access to God through Jesus Christ because our sins have been forgiven. We are made holy in Jesus so that we can approach the Holy One. Have you ever thought about that? You could only go into the... The, the priest would have to go through an enormous ritual, the high priest would, in order to go into the, the Holy of Holies. But brothers and sisters, we have been made holy by the only one who can make us holy through his blood that we can enter into the access to God. Every time you get on your knees and you pray to the Father and you cry out to him and you come into the throne room of grace, you can only do so because Jesus Christ has died to make that possible. Something that we just take for granted so easily. But access to God is through Jesus and by his cleansing blood that washes us and makes us clean and holy. And, and notice that this curtain in verse 38 was torn from the top to the bottom. If this was something that some person had done or had naturally happened, it would have been torn from the bottom. But it was torn from the top, showing that God was giving us access to him. And so this, this tearing of this curtain, which you know would have been quite an amazing feat and would have definitely caught the attention of the priest as it happened, is a sign of victory, victory over sin, victory over the former separation with God, victory in making cursed and defiled sinners blessed and holy, that we could access to God through Jesus Christ. The cross means victory, brothers and sisters. Not only judgment and suffering and shame, but also victory. As much as the cross meant judgment, it also meant victory uh, for us. And so this morning, as, as we think about these things, I, I just want to ask you this. What do you want Jesus to be? What do you want Jesus to be? How, how does he function in your life? Not just what do you know about him from Sunday school or Bible study or maybe things that you've read, but how do you treat Jesus? What is he to you in one sense? I ask this because this passage tells us who Jesus really is. Actually, the whole book of Mark actually tells us who Jesus Christ really is. And it shows us 
what it means for Jesus to be our Lord and our Savior. He's our Savior who died for us and now calls us to follow Him. But is who you want Jesus to be the same as who He really is? Who the Bible says He is. Now we can say, yeah, Jesus is my Savior and Lord. But but sometimes what we really are saying is something more like this. That Jesus can be my Lord, if he will be my Savior. But then we go on to tell Jesus what it means for him to be our Savior, right? It turns out that we have maybe something different in mind, just like the Jews had something different in mind for Jesus as the Messiah. We want Jesus to save us from specific things in our life. Maybe it's a broken relationship. Maybe maybe it's our credit card debt. Maybe it's our bad spending habits. Maybe you want to save You want him to save you from yourself because you have low self-esteem and and you're looking to Jesus to make you feel better about yourself? What are you looking for Jesus to save you from in this life? What, What do your prayers reflect that you want from Jesus? What are the things that consume you? What are the things that you pray about? Is it maybe that he will deal with the heart of that wayward child? Is it that you know he'll he'll somehow help you to make ends meet in your life is it that you'll feel better what what is it that consumes your prayers you see in all these things we can we can have a wrong idea about what it means for Jesus to be our savior because Jesus came to save us from our sins that's what what makes him our lord you see, we, we can be just as mistaken as the people were in verses 35 and 36. Those that were standing by the cross and, and watching Jesus die on the cross. And they didn't understand why he was there. And when they were looking for Elijah to come save Jesus from the cross. But they misunderstood why Jesus was there. You see, Jesus wasn't there needing Elijah's help. Jesus was there to die for Elijah so that his sins could be taken care of. He was there to die you and I and they didn't understand what Jesus' mission was all about that he came to save us from our sins and and we need to do a heart exam we need to pray for the Lord to look at our hearts and to expose us and to correct our skewed sense of what it means for Jesus to be our savior not to save us from all of our problems and our troubles in our lives but from our sins Now, let me just say this, just to be very clear. It's not that Jesus doesn't care about all the issues that we're wrestling with. He does. He does. He knows the troubled areas of our lives. And and Jesus does want to address them, but the way he usually addresses them is more a function of his lordship in our life than his function of him being our savior. Now, I know it's sort of odd to, to sort of put the the parts of Christ in two different boxes, you know, like as a Savior here and as a Lord, because we know from Scripture that those it's a united package. Those two things go together. But just bear with me if you would. You see, the problems in life that we so often want Jesus to save us from are usually things He wants to address as our Lord. In other words, as our Lord, He's instructing us in how to live life. And not only instructing us, but he gives us his spirit 
to give us power and ability to obey Him and to trust Him and to walk by faith and to do the things He says. And as our Lord, He tells us how to act in that troubled relationship. In, 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 uh, as our Lord, He commands us how to handle our money and He gives us a new perspective on how we are to view ourselves. You see, as our Lord, He tells us and He enables us in how to live in a way that is holy and righteous. And that's so often how He actually saves us from these issues in our lives, by telling us how to live in godliness and, and to change the sinful patterns that have made us fall into these problem areas in the first place. Now, let me just say this. I recognize not everything that we suffer is because of our sin. Sometimes it's because of the sin of others, and there's, there's things that we have no control over. But, but there is much that we do. And we might cry out to Jesus and say, Jesus, deal with this and this and this and this circumstance. And yet we don't want him to deal with the sin that we're given into. And I think it's an unchristian arrogance that sits back expecting Jesus to just save you from the problems we create by our sinful lust and actions instead of asking yourself some tough questions. Questions like, how have I contributed to this issue in my life? In what ways has my sin contributed to this? How does the Lord want me to start responding in this situation? What does biblical repentance look like? You see, just praying to Jesus to save you from some situation without examining the situation like this uh, usually means that you've uh, a perverted sense of what it means for Jesus to be Lord and Savior. And, and I think that this is not so uncommon, brothers and sisters. And so I'm calling us all to, to continue to reflect on what it means for Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of our lives and, and to trust Him and to look to Him to, to, to deal with our sins. Now, that doesn't mean that everything on this earth will all of a sudden become just rosy and hunky-dory and life will be great. But we do know that the final outcome of Jesus being our Lord and our Savior will be that all of life's troubles will go away. Because one day when we stand with Him face to face as Bob does this morning, you know, then all of the troubles are gone. All the struggles with sin are gone. Um, because we know that while we stand before Him, uh, our names will be written in the book of life. And that great day of judgment will be for us the great day of victory. Full, consummated victory. Salvation at its fullest. No more problems, no more sins that we will struggle with. And we will be with our Lord and Savior for all eternity. Amen? Let's bow our heads this morning as we meditate upon this word this morning.
Lord Jesus, we want to thank you so much this morning for reminding us of your great love for your Father to do his will and to purchase a people that would be redeemed for, for all eternity. But thank you, God, as, as part of this people that you have shown such great love to us. We recognize this morning that we don't deserve it and that oftentimes and as our lives we're so busy doing the things that we want to do that sometimes we don't even think about what you've done. We ask for your forgiveness this morning for our callousness and our self-centeredness. Oh, please deliver us from such tunnel vision of just focusing upon ourselves and not giving you the glory and the worship that you deserve. Oh, please help us this week as we leave this place to live each and every day, beginning with this afternoon, just living, thinking about what you have done for us on the cross. Turning to you, Lord, moment by moment, uh, hour by hour, day by day, praying, God, praying, that we would walk in holiness and righteousness and rejoicing that our sins have been addressed. Oh, Father, I pray for any that may not know you, that they may understand that no matter what their life has entailed, that there can be forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And I pray that they would cry out to you and ask for mercy, Lord, knowing that you are a God that completely forgives. We ask in your name. Amen.